The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We're now to Philippians 2, verse 19, and uh, we'll go through verse 30. We'll finish up uh, Philippians 2 today. We're continuing this verse-by-verse, section-by-section series, what we're calling Durable, looking through the book of Philippians and learning uh, from it. So as you're turning there in in your Bible, let me just paint a picture for you and ask a question uh, as we get started. Uh, Let me paint this picture. Let's say tonight you were invited to a party, maybe a big party, something at the Civic Center downtown, and you were invited as the guest of honor. And as the host recognized you and introduced you, what do you think she would say? For what are you known? What are those actions and attitudes that uh, she might highlight, that you exemplify, that are worthy of imitation? Would she, as the host, would she recognize Christ at all as she recognizes you? See, in the book of Philippians, now we've been learning much in these two chapters, haven't we? It began by uh, showing us a more durable way of life, of an identity, a durable identity that we have as believers that far outlasts any earthly role that we might have. In, In the family of God, we have durable relationships that are built upon and centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of the gospel, we have a durable joy one that is hitched to the, uh, to the character of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that uh, our joy is more durable and can be unshaken despite the trials in our life, despite the circumstances happening around us. See, we as believers, we have a durable purpose that whether we live or die, that it is all gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because our citizenship ultimately isn't here on this earth, is it? Is in heaven. We have something bigger for which we live and a place for which we long for that is far greater than anything here. And we've been shown on that journey, we've been shown the way to unity, the way of humility, that the way up is down. And that the way forward in our faith is to work it out with fear and trembling and without complaining and grumbling and to be full of joy, right? And all through these two chapters here, Christ has been upheld for us. Christ has been shown to us as the great example for how we are to live, but his life is much more than that, for he also is the means by which any of this is possible. There is death on the cross. We've been given access as we prayed and as we've worshiped and nearly even the ability to live the life that God calls us to in Christ Jesus. And now in the, this, uh, as chapter 2 closes, we've been given three examples here. Three examples of men living out the truths of the previous two chapters. Men who have left behind for us a durable reputation. Men whose lives are worthy of honor and imitation. As we come to the end of chapter 2, it's almost as if we've been invited to a a dinner, to a celebration. And as uh, Paul is our host and Timothy and Epaphroditus as the guests of honor. 
And so I want to read for us our verses now, almost as if they are being held up and introduced for us. Paul will shine really the spotlight on these godly examples. And so look at your Bible now. I want to read Philippians 2, 19 through 30. They say this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Wow, right? Read these verses, and you're like, this is a durable reputation. Paul was right to honor and to uh, set these men before us, for these are some pretty incredible guys. But what was it that made them stand out? What was it that made these two guys worthy of honor? Were Timothy and Epaphroditus, were these like some superhero Christians? You know, with like some supernatural abilities that are inaccessible to just ordinary men and women like you and I? Are these just uh, some, some, some superhero, super-powered, super-charged believers? I don't think so. I don't think so. It appears that these are just some normal guys, right? Normal dudes just simply living out the verses, living out and seeking to obey and apply the truths that we've seen thus far in the book of Philippians. And as a result, through these men's lives, through their reputation that has endured through the centuries here, Christ has been glorified. The gospel has been advanced and they indeed are honored. And I would submit to you this morning, the reason why they're in here is not to just make these guys look good. But I would submit to you this morning that this, there are some lessons here for us. And, and, and I would really then submit to you this premise, that the world needs more gospel people. The world needs more men like these men and women willing to lay their life on the line. And by gospel people, by gospel people, I just simply mean men and women like these guys who are living out a life worthy of the gospel. The question then this morning to ask yourself is, will I be one? Will I be a gospel man, a gospel woman like these guys here? And as you seek to answer that question this morning, we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to highlight them and shine the spotlight on what made them so exemplary. But I would submit to you that our world needs more men and women like this. And so let's look then at the first one. Let's look at Timothy. The world needs more Timothy. Those selfless companions. 
those selfless companions. See, it's a significant amount uh, that we do know about him. So let me just read how one commentator just describes his life. It's pretty sweeping here, but it's pretty, uh, as it gives us a glimpse uh, into who this man was. Listen here as I read. Timothy was a, a native of Lystra in the province of Galatia, which is part of uh, modern Turkey today. His mother Eunice was Jewish and his father was a Greek and probably a pagan, did not follow the Lord. Paul led Timothy then to Christ and it was probably during uh, Paul's visit to Lystra on his first missionary journey. Both his mother and his grandmother Lois were believers. They're both actually mentioned. Their reputation is mentioned in 2 Timothy. And they had instructed Timothy in the Old Testament. Along with his spiritual maturity, combined with Timothy's Jewish and Greek heritage, it made him uniquely qualified to minister the gospel with Paul to the Gentiles, those non-Jewish believers around the world. By the time Paul wrote Philippians, this book that we're in, Timothy had been his almost constant companion for a decade. For 10 years, these two had ministered side by side all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. It's with great affection then that Paul spoke of him as my true child in the faith, my beloved son, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, my fellow worker, our brother, and in this present letter here as a fellow bondservant in Christ Jesus, uh, back in the introduction. Timothy was with Paul in Corinth. He was sent to Macedonia. He accompanied Paul on his return trip to Jerusalem. He was associated with Paul in the writing of, get this, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He served Paul as, a, as Paul's troubleshooter in Corinth and Thessalonica, as Ephesus and Philippi. It's like if there was a church or a group of people that were having some problems, some uh, disunity or some theological things, guess who got sent in? work. It was Timothy. Timothy was faithful and dependable in every way and clearly was qualified to be a model for the Philippians to emulate. They were well acquainted with him since he was doubtless with Paul when when the church was being founded there in Acts 16. It is therefore hardly surprising that the apostle was eager to send Timothy to them shortly, which is where we get the, uh, the, the travel instructions here. And this is really a sweeping uh, a look at this man's ministry. But what even stands out in this is the friendship, the companionship that Timothy and Paul seem to have for the sake of the gospel. And I read this passage and I, and I think of the friendship and the camaraderie that they had. And I think to myself, oh, for a friend like this, right? Uh, oh, that God would put a, a, a companion, somebody in our life that would walk through uh, the ministry with us. And I, I think like, oh, to be a friend like this, right? Standing alongside someone. And let me, let me just interject this here. Like if you have a friend, a companion like this, a selfless companion, don't let, go to bed tonight without thanking them, without communicating your love and affection for this person. And so what is it that stands out about Timothy then? What makes him a man worthy of imitation? Why does our world need more men like Timothy, more women like Timothy, those who would be selfless companions? Well, the thing that stands out that Paul brings uh, to the light here is his genuine concern for their welfare. Look at verse 20. 
You see, like Paul's heart coming out, he says, I have no one like him who will be con- genuinely concerned for your welfare. This word uh, concern here is translated oftentimes as anxiety or worry in a negative sense. But here it's highlighted in the positive sense. See, Timothy is a man deeply burdened for others, particularly for the Philippians. He knows what's going on there, and he has a heart of compassion for them, a heart of concern. He's worried uh, about how they are growing and progressing in the faith. See, what stands out, what makes this genuine concern uh, different is that he actually cares for them and doesn't just care about them. There's a big difference there. A genuine concern, caring for somebody, is, uh, is outward and it's active. It's putting action to the things that we feel and actually doing something, not just feeling it or not just uh, saying it, but never getting around to actually doing it. Genuine concern, a selfless companion is someone who knows the difference between saying, yes, I'll pray for you and let's pray right now. It's the difference in genuine concern of somebody who says, well, let me know if I can do anything versus the person that says, hey, I'll bring dinner over tonight for you and your family. It's the difference between caring about and caring for. It's the difference between just thinking about somebody and then actually calling and texting and checking in on them. See, our world needs people who are concerned for the interests of others, as we've seen this, as Christ exemplified, as we were called to do earlier in chapter 2. But there's a second thing that stands out about this selfless companion, Timothy. Look at verse 22 here. It says his proven worth. But you know Timothy's proven worth. He's recalling to mind the example after example of Timothy's uh, service to them for the sake of the gospel. He knows, Paul knows it, and he's recalling it to mind to the Philippians and even to us of his uh, proven worth usefulness in the gospel. Paul considered him like a son there. There's a deep affection here. There's been a faithfulness and a camaraderie throughout life in this work of the gospel. Much in the same way that I felt for two years for Paul Polson as he worked alongside me, his proven worth, his usefulness to gospel purposes in my life and the church's life. But a proven worth is just that. It's a usefulness, a dedication to the gospel and to, the, uh, to other people. See, Timothy was a man who was continually showing up, continually pouring out, uh, continually uh, uh, looking out for the interests of others and not for his own accolades, not to gain a, a spotlight, not to uh, look good in front of anybody. But he was consistent in his character, consistent in his conduct, and he was capable of the responsibility given to him, showing up with, uh, prepared and with joy. No matter if the city or the church that he was going to was hostile to the gospel or hospitable to the gospel, he was a man with great proven worth. Over and over, Timothy had shown himself a selfless companion and a minister to the gospel uh, alongside Paul. Paul and every church in that era and every church today wants men like him around. We want men and women like this. We need gospel people Selfless companions, selfless servants for the sake of the gospel, just as our world needs people like this. Amen? See, what we need less of, what we need less of is self-absorbed narcissists. 
We need, we need less of people who are only in it for themselves. See, sandwiched in between the two uh, 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 highlighted characteristics of, of Timothy in 20 and 22, there in verse 21, is this, uh, is this contrast here. He says, For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Now, there's some debate, honestly, about, well, who they all is. Like, we need a good uh, Texan word for that, right? We got y'all, so the all or something. Who is they all? Who is it? Is it the selfless preachers in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18? Those who are preaching out of envy and rivalry for their own accolades? Paul was even like, hey, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I don't care what their motives are. Is it them he's referring to? Is it the Roman believers there? Paul's in prison there in Rome, and apparently Timothy needed to stay because nobody else was caring for him. They're all just seeking their own interests and not helping this minister, this apostle in the gospel. Or is it just a generic, they all, and speaking to all the world? Well, honestly, we don't really know. We can make a case for any of them, but the application is the same in each uh, thing. Humans are full of themselves. Nobody has to teach us to look out for me, myself, and I, right? We're just like born this way. We want to get ahead. We want our own interests. We want our own pleasure. We don't like anything to inconvenience us or anything to set us apart. For why? Because we are all about ourselves. But this attitude, this self-absorption, this independent thinking, this this being wrapped up in our own passions and what make us happy and our own pleasures is what is leading our world into the pit. It's leading us into the pit, y'all. Seeking out after our own interests and not that of Jesus Christ. It's leading our world in pit. So many of our marriage issues are because of, uh, of the, the, the result of this attitude. Where we want it my way. We want the house decorated my way. We want this food cooked. We want this and on my schedule and in my demands. And we want everything else to revolve around me and not Jesus Christ. Your marriage will quickly go into the pit. If we come into it and we act as the self-absorbed narcissist, but your marriage will thrive as God has intended it, is if we come in as a selfless companion, looking out for the interests of Christ in the other person and putting their needs before our own. Same is true in the workplace. There's so many issues, so many things are, are go in the pit because we think the job is all about us. We come into it thinking that this is my way to get ahead. This is how I'm advancing up the corporate ladder. These employees are here so that I look good and to do what I want them to do. And I'm going to boss them around. Or why? My boss, I'm not going to listen to him or her. He doesn't care about me. I care about me. And hey, church, let us be people no matter where we are who we're with, whether we're in our home, whether we're in the workplace, whether we're walking up and down our street, the world needs more selfless companions interested in the things of Christ, seeing our uh, life as a gospel opportunity. Our friendships, our companionships, our marriages, they, these are tools to make us more like Jesus Christ. God's sanctifying us, helping to sand off the rough edges and bringing us and less, less, less self-absorbed narcissists. We need those with genuine concern, with a proven worth, a consistent conduct, all for the sake of Jesus Christ. See, we need these. We need to be men and women like this. But there's a second type of gospel person that the world needs here, and it's captured in Timothy, the world, or in Epaphroditus, rather. 
Anybody can pronounce that? All, all you pregnant families out there maybe need a name. Here's a, here's a good name for you. Epaphroditus. The world needs more Epaphroditus. Those risk-taking servants here. No, that didn't. Nobody's, out of all the pregnant people in here, nobody's going to take this name. Well, you might after we get a little glimpse of him here. This is really all we know about Epaphroditus in this chapter here. Let me actually paint a picture uh, for you because we know much less. And so a scholar kind of gives us a glimpse here. He says, Epaphroditus was a layman whom we would never have heard of apart from Paul's writing uh, right here. Epaphroditus served in no public capacity. He did not shepherd a flock, as did Timothy. He did not take the gospel to an unreached area. He did not receive special revelation, and he wrote nothing. All he did was faithfully discharge his duty by delivering a bag of money to Paul and then by looking after him. Yet he is called here by Paul a brother, a fellow worker, fellow soldier, and was identified to the Philippians as apostle and a minister. We must understand that to serve in some unnoticed, unrecognized place in the body of Christ is as much the work of Christ as his public ministry, end quote. See, this is a guy that we can all relate to. This is a, this is a, a guy whose example we can follow. See, he was a guy that was both missable and missional. Yeah, I made up that word. He was miserable. See, he's gone. And, and as we read the passage here, you, you got a sense they missed him, right? They were concerned for his well-being. And so uh, the, he's the guy that everybody loves and everybody misses even when they're gone. He ha- doesn't have any stage. He doesn't have any public ministry. But he was a guy that everybody knew was living for the mission, living to make disciples, living for the advancement of the gospel, and willing to put his life on the line no matter what it cost so that the gospel would go forward and disciples would be. Of being children of God, sons of God, and brothers in Christ Jesus. He calls him a fellow worker. That closeness and, or closeness and camaraderie that you feel in a job well done as you achieve and accomplish a task together, uh, especially when it's very difficult, especially when there's things to untangle. A fellow worker and a fellow soldier, men who knew the heat of the battle, men who knew the, the cost of being attacked and what it took to follow Christ. They trusted one another with their life. These are ways as they felt to, uh, amongst each other as brothers and fellow workers and fellow soldiers. This is, these are the relationships that exist amongst our eldership. As Cade and Eric, I feel the same way about these brothers, about these fellow workers, these fellow soldiers. They're men that I trust uh, with my life. Men that uh, pastor me, shepherd me, work alongside as we strain together for the advancement of the gospel and the building up of this church. That's what we exist between us. And so between Paul and Epaphroditus, these things exist. But to the Philippians, look at what he is to them. He's a messenger, literally an apostle, a little a apostle, somebody who brought news, who brought an update, who brought stories and encouragement, who delivered a message. How did Paul know about what was happening in Philippians? Well, because Epaphroditus had brought it to him. 
He was discharged with, a, with some finances, with some money, and delivered it from uh, Philippi to Rome to care for Paul. And as he did that, as he was a minister to his need, literally in that, in the physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense, as he, uh, as he made the journey and brought the stories and brought the encouragement and then would deliver this letter and take those same stories, this, this encouragement about Paul's welfare, back to Philippi. And so get the, get the picture here. I want, I want you to think about what is happening. So Philippi is over in uh, you know, modern-day Greece, over there in the, what was then known as Macedonia. Paul is imprisoned over here in, in Rome. And if you know any sort of geography and you can picture it in your head, it isn't like Epaphroditus hopped on an airplane in Philippi Regional and flew a nice uh, plane ride across the Mediterranean and landed in Rome. No, he didn't. And this was an arduous journey, his life on the line at every step. As he journeyed through that uh, world, and any other who would travel, who would have delighted to rob him and even kill him for the money in which he was carrying along the way. And the, the great thing is, is that despite all of the dangers that I just mentioned and many more, he made it, didn't he? He made it there. But there was one danger that did catch up with him. For what did happen to Epaphroditus that we see in the verses? He got sick, and not just sick, like with like some seasonal allergies, right? He got sick to the point of death. Got sick to the point of, of death. And mind you, this, you know, we think of our modern medicine and all that, man. If you came down with a cold and you came you got sick in those days, uh, your life was on the line. And that's where they knew those verses, or that phrase there in verse 27, but God had mercy on him. Underline that, highlight that so you never miss that section again. God had mercy on him. And here's the reality, church. Whether you live, whether you die, your life is in the hands of our merciful Every breath that you breathe, every, every beat of your heart is in the hands of our merciful God. Whether he chooses to heal you or not, whether he chooses to heal you through a miraculous means or medicinal means, it is all according to God's mercy. Our life is in his hands. And don't ever, ever forget that. Recovery is always because of God's mercy. And this gives us both comfort and courage, doesn't it? Just like the song we sung this morning. This gives us great comfort knowing that our life is in God's hand. Comfort for today especially. You, you may get COVID, church. You may get it. it. It could possibly kill you. Either way, your life is secure in the merciful hands of God. For like we've already seen, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your life is in, his, is in His merciful hand. It gives us courage for today then too to continue living for gospel purposes, to continue to uh, put your life on the line. Why? Not just to be reckless, not just to be crazy, but for the sake of the gospel, knowing that there is a, a purpose for which we live, using our life to bring even the mercy of God to others. We who have received the mercy, who know the goodness of God, are then responsible as messengers, as apostles, those that, uh, that have not uh, uh, reckoned with the truth that God is holy, that He is sovereign, that He is good, and we are not. That our sin has separated us. It has created a problem that we cannot fix ourselves. But because of God being rich in mercy, the great love with which He loved us, He sent Christ. 
Christ who, as we say often, who lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we were supposed to live. Why? So that when we repent of our sin, this, this desire to live for ourselves and to try to save ourselves and to do things in order to impress and please God, which we cannot do, when we repent of living that way and embrace Christ, believing in Him in faith, then we are saved. Then we are saved and we can walk in newness of life, new joy, new purpose, new comfort, new courage for living today in the midst of all of this. And this is the message that we carry. This is the reason for which we live and minister. The question that remains this morning is what will you risk to serve and to advance the gospel? What will, what will, what will you risk? Our world needs men and women like Epaphroditus, risk-taking servants, willing to put their life on the line so that the mercy of God would be made known. You know, it was interesting in my study this week, I came across some examples, some, some of those examples from history from way back uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, I guess it would be really, eh, not quite thousands, but a long time ago. These risk-taking servants, following the example of Epaphroditus, there was a group of believers willing to risk their life in service. Listen to this example I came across. Soon after New Testament times, there was a group of Christians who banded together in an association uh, called the Parabolani, which means gamblers, okay? Um, or risk takers. It's the, uh, that word is really a derivative of the Greek word there in verse 30 of, of risk, okay? Now, it sounds kind of like a cult, like the Illuminati or something. Don't get any crazy conspiracy ideas about it. They were just an association here that took Epaphroditus as their model. And here's what they did. They visited prisoners and ministered to the sick, especially those with dangerous communicable diseases whom no one else would help. The Mediterranean coast of North Africa, that, uh, the, the, on the south side. So you have the Mediterranean Sea, and so Carthage is there on the tip of, of North Africa. When, when they suffered in that city a severe plague in AD 252, the pagan inhabitants were so frightened of the contagion that they refused refused to touch the dead bodies, even to bury them. Cyprian, bishop of the church there, led the Christians in the arduous and dangerous task of ministering to the sick and dying and of burying the thousands of corpses. The spiritual influence of that silent but powerful testimony on their unbelieving and formerly hostile neighbors doubtless was immeasurable." End quote. See, these were people, this is a massive calling, right? This is a massive risk. These are huge examples. And maybe even that, that just sounds daunting. Like, yeah, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's not the level of risk tolerance that I have. But these are the types of people that the gospel, or the type of gospel people that our world needs as we want to see disciples made, the Great Commission uh, fulfilled and the gospel going forward. And so here's what our world needs less of. It needs less safety-driven zealots. Less safety-driven zealots. And I say that in all tenderness. I say that with all pastoral affection. Those that are paralyzed by the most minuscule of risk. Now, let me, let me just be very clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're called to be reckless and, uh, and foolish, all right? We're just to abandon all sort of sense and caution and wisdom. But what I am saying and what the scripture would call us to is that safety kind of it's safe. Is it physically safe? The answer to that, beloved, is always no. There is always a measure of risk in everything that we do, no matter how many guardrails, no matter how many bumpers, no matter how much bubble wrap we would put up upon anybody. 
There are always risks to everything that we do in this life. Physical safety is really just an illusion. As Christians, as Christians, the better questions to ask is, is God sovereign? And church, the answer to that is always and absolutely yes. Your life is in his hands. Your life, as we just got many amens to the mercy of God, your life is in his hands. Better question to ask is, does this advance the gospel? Is risking my life, is it for gospel purposes? Is it for myself? Is it, is it for the interests of others? See, God is not aware of the dangers that we face. And so if he is calling us to be gospel servants, if he is calling us to, uh, to advance the gospel, to minister to somebody, to be a messenger for his purposes, then we can trust him with whatever risks remain. He's not calling us to be reckless, nor is he maybe calling us to go to the extremes of the group like the Parabolani. He may not call us to journey for weeks with money and a message like Epaphroditus to care for a brother or a sister in the faith. But he is calling you to take risks with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to journey across the street, to journey across the hallway in your work, to be a messenger with the gospel. He's calling you to take risks in your small group, to care for that person who is hurting, to enter into their pain, to enter into their struggle, to be vulnerable. He is calling you to take risks, to give a little bit more for the sake of making Jesus Christ known in our life. See, church, as I submitted to you, our world, our church, our city needs more risk-taking servants if we want things to change. You know, we ultimately are looking forward to the return of Christ. Messiah will come and all this will change. But in the meantime, if we want to see growth in our own life, if we want to see the mercy of God unleashed upon God's people, then we must take risks with the gospel, laying our life on the line so that others may find eternal life in Christ Jesus. These are the type of people that are... Did I miss something? Well, we did cover both guys, but hold on a second. Our world needs more Paul as well. Our world needs more Paul, those tender-hearted shepherds that care for the people of God. See, as, as Paul is writing about both Timothy and Epaphroditus, he is modeling uh, uh, in himself a person worthy of imitation, a person worthy of honor, a tender-hearted shepherd. See, this is a, a defining characteristic amongst those who lead, amongst those who influence uh, the people of God and in our world. And three things stand out in, in his letter and in his writing about these guys. The first is he is a shepherd who is aware. He's, he's aware of what is happening, and though he's imprisoned, which is so amazing here, he is in tune with what is happening in Philippi, with their well-being and their, their distresses and their anguish. He's, he's, he's in tune with what's going on in Timothy's life and Epaphroditus' life. See, he is aware and in tune with the people around him. He knows what's happening, just like a shepherd knows the condition of his sheep. Paul knows the condition of his people. Which is pretty, it's not a day, he doesn't have a cell phone. Can't scroll through Facebook and seeing what they're posting. He's not getting any text or anything. But he's going to great lengths that even though his communication is severely limited, while he's in prison and chained to a guard, he's still aware, still showing great concern. And he, he, he knows and loves his people. And that's, that's really the second thing. As a shepherd, as a tender-hearted shepherd, he's aware, but he's also affectionate. Look at how he speaks tenderly of Timothy as a father, how he speaks honorably as Epaphroditus as a 
servant. And he speaks expectantly of the Philippians and for their growth and for their own uh, relief as they get news back. And so he cares deeply, has this big heart. He desires their growth. And so he's organizing and arranging things so that they would all be cared for. He's aware of the need. He's affectionate and compassionate towards it. And he's also ambitious. He's, he's planning and organizing. He's not just like sitting back in prison. It's like, well, you know, I'm chained here. Might as well catch up on some sleep. I've had a busy, you know, a decade of ministry. I've been beaten. I've got some bruises. This would be a great time to rest up. No, we get the sense that he is busy and at work. He's active and planning this all in this chapter here. It's like a travel. I know how it's going with him. And he wants to himself in verse 24 to go back to them. And so he's arranging all of these details. Why? For the sake of their own soul and also for the advance of the gospel, for their growth in Christ Jesus. He's advancing the gospel. Everything, even here, as he said way back in chapter 1, verse 12, that everything in his life is serving to advance the gospel. See, church, our, our city, even in our own church, our world needs more shepherd-minded people just like Aware of the people around them, aware of the details, not in like a gossipy, meddling type way, but in a way uh, that is affectionate and genuinely cares and seeks to want to help them. Affectionate towards the people and the needs and then ambitious to get things done. Not just sitting idly, not just here on vacation, but all uh, uh, working uh, proactively, not just merely reactively, all for the glory of God and the good of others. So our world needs more tender-hearted shepherds like this in our home, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and it needs less tough guy bullies. It needs less tough guy bullies out there just bowling over people, out there uh, just using and abusing people. You know, bravado and big talk, they make for good TV shows and sound bites, but they make for really poor gospel reputations. And we all know the examples of guys like this and women like this, and so we don't even need to really describe them or explain what they're like. But beloved, the call this morning is to live as a tender-hearted shepherd, just like the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. In your home, be tender, not tough, not harsh, not brash, not bowling over your spouse or your kids as you serve in the church. Let us be tender-hearted and compassionate, aware and affectionate, ambitious, all for the glory of God. See, these are three guys who exemplify the teaching that we've seen thus far in Philippians, don't they? Have you seen him? As, as some of the lessons that we've learned along the way, you begin to see, wow, this guy exemplifies it. And so it's a fitting uh, ending to the first two chapters. But beyond these guys, who do they imitate? They imitate Christ. They put on display through their life the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why they are held in such esteem as they imitate Christ. So we are Jesus Christ. And so as I interjected earlier, let us be men and women who do that. Even, even this week, those people that come to mind, let us be diligent to receive them and to honor them as the scripture would call us to as we seek to really follow their example and then leave our own durable reputation, a legacy for Jesus Christ. And so redemption, do you want to make it to the end? Do you want to make it to the end and be found faithful as God has called us to be? 
Do you want to make it to the end and have a joy like has been described in these two chapters? Do you want to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, emulating our great Savior? Do you want to leave a legacy of faith to your kids and grandkids? You want your life to count for Christ. And the call this morning is to live like these guys as they live like Christ, as selfless companions, as risk-taking servants, as tender-hearted shepherds. The world needs more gospel people. And the question hangs there, will you be one? Let's pray and ask God's help then in that. God in heaven, here we are. Uh, your word before us, your word acting like a mirror, causing us to uh, examine our own life. To see the truth of how you've called us to live, to see the truth of what an honorable, worthy life for the gospel of Jesus Christ is, and to examine our own life and see how we, uh, how we live, how we think. Lord, we're not here because we're seeking accolades. We're not here because we want honor and glory. We just simply want Christ to be made much of. We want his mercy to, 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 to be proclaimed across all the globe. And so even as we uh, sit here now, even as we think on your word, even as we chew on it, we're asking, Lord, for your help. Do you take the truth of these things and impress them upon us? You cause us to see where, man, we need to repent. And to do that even now, even as we sing, even as we uh, are in your presence. Let us embrace with great joy the mission that you've called us to. To live and to take another step just in increasing holiness. To work out. So we love you. We pray these things now in Christ's name.